We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. If you had to pick what is the most important doctrine that we believe, what would it be? The mo- you can only pick one. The most important doctrine that we believe, what would it be? The most important doctrine. Just think about that. Just for ju- let that kind of let that kind of simmer on you a little bit, because we're going to go back to the Reformation. When we walk through the Reformation, we walk through church history. I'm going to remind you that we talked a lot about Martin Luther and him coming across Romans 1:17. It says the righteous will live by faith, and he began to recognize that we are either going to believe the Bible and the whole of the Bible and the gospel that the Bible teaches or not. And if we do believe it, then the Bible has to be the authority for faith and practice and that the Bible now has to reign supreme over every other theology, other, every aspect of theology and all aspects of doctrine. So, if there is a disagreement between doctrine between the Bible and the church, then you must always go with the Bible, every time. So he began to then take the beliefs of the church at his time, the Roman Catholic Church, and compare those with the doctrines of Scripture, and he came up with the 95 Theses. While this is taking place, we also learned that the Reformation was sweeping uh, across Europe while that was going on as well, as people were getting back to the Bible. We learned, we know that Johann Gutenberg and the printing press, that that made the Bible more readily available so that people could not only read it but were exposed to it. People began to have the Bible printed in their own language so that as it got printed in their own language, they could not only get a copy of it, but now they could read it for themselves. And as literacy went up, Bible publication went up, and as people now had the Bible in their own language, they were able to begin to see for themselves whether or not they were going to believe the Bible or whether or not they were going to believe the church. So what coming out of the Reformation came what are known as the five solas. And this is a summary of what the evangelical Protestant church believes. If you had to pick five things that you would say, these five things declare what we believe. Not that we do not believe more than these things, but these are the bedrock of theology. If you were only going to know about five things, the five things that we're going to study over the next ten weeks make up what are known as the five solas. Now, we're going to talk about those. We're going to spend two weeks on each of the solas. But there is a reason that the first sola we talk about is sola scriptura or scripture alone. Sola simply means only. That's, That's it. So when we say sola scriptura or scripture alone, why would we place that first? Because there's some other really big ones. There's faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone and God's glory alone. So why would scripture alone be the first place that you started when talking about doctrine? Why? You're putting scripture ahead of Christ alone? Yes. Why? Because it is God's Word and it is absolutely the most important doctrine that we have. You say, wait a minute, that makes me a little nervous. Here's why. The only reason you know that by grace you're saved through faith is not of yourself so that no man can boast is because you have the Word of God. 
The only reason that you know about Jesus Christ is because you have the Word of God. The only reason that you know about the cross and about forgiveness is because of the Word of God. So we champion the Word of God because without championing the Word of God, we're unable to champion any other doctrine. So any study of theology, <clears throat> any study of doctrine, if it is going to be worth its weight, it's going to have to start with a study of the Word of God and whether or not we believe the Word of God. When we say that we believe that the Bible is inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative for life and faith and practice, what do we mean when we say that we believe God's Word? So I'm going to make that statement. We believe God's Word. I'm not even going to give you a true or false because I think most of you, you're here on a Wednesday night, you would answer true. Why, though? Why do we believe that that is a bedrock doctrine of the church? I want to walk you through uh, tonight and next week some very, what I think are absolutely essential aspects of the faith. But I want to tell you a personal story. Um, I, grew up in, I grew up in church, never had a Bible class until I went to seminary. I went to USM, so I didn't take any Bible classes in college. I all closest thing to a Bible class I'd had was a small group or a Bible study or a Sunday school class. I'd never taken an academic Bible class in my life till I got to seminary. So I'd grown up in church and thought I knew the Bible pretty well, thought that I had been exposed to some different thoughts. But when I got to seminary, I was where some people may go in cynical, I, was, I went in thirsty. I was excited. You have to know that when God called me to ministry, um, surrendered to the call of ministry, gave my life to that. A year later, I'm in seminary, so I show up for preview day, and I'm trying to sign up for classes, and everybody else there seems to kind of know what they're doing. I, have, I don't even know what the classes are. Like, I'm having to go take the book and look up. They said, you're going to take hermeneutics. I said, I don't know what that is. So I thought, before I take it, maybe I ought to know what it is that I'm signing up for. I signed up for a class called Systematic Theology. They told me I needed Hebrew. They had to tell me I needed to take a course in homiletics. I didn't know what that was. So I'm looking up these course names, and every time I looked up a definition, I'm like, that sounds fantastic. I really I want to take that Old Testament, New Testament classes. So I'm signing up for these classes, and I'm so excited about that. And, and so I walk in, and I was a little to my dismay. There were some students in the classes that weren't maybe as excited about being there as I was. And most of those people had actually come from Bible colleges, which surprised me. People that had actually gotten degrees in religion and Christian history and those type things. And so when they came, and, and so I, tried to, I was trying to figure out where is some of this cynicism coming from? And so I have this conversation with a guy that I'm riding back and forth to New Orleans with and um, because this was brand new to me. And I was taking Old Testament, and so we were talking about some things we had in class, and he asked me this. He said, uh, well, I mean, you don't believe that, like, Adam and Eve were literal, like, literal people, do you? And I didn't know what... To, I, I didn't even know that was an option. I mean, I, I didn't. I said, yeah, I, th I think I do. Like, I mean, yeah, I, I, think, I think I do. I'm just starting to kind of think through some of these things. I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, uh, he said, so like Noah and the ark, you believe there was actually a man that built a boat and like the world flooded and animals got on it? I said, yeah. Um, now you've 
piqued my curiosity because I'm, I'm now I'm so far removed from this that I don't know what we're even talking. I mean, I'm, I'm so ignorant, I don't even know what I'm ignorant of. You ever, ever been? And so, I, so I'm thinking, well, I'll play. What, what, what are you talking about? And he begins this long explanation about how the first chapters of Genesis are allegorical and symbolic and that it really is just a way to help us understand the way that God brought. He believes that God created the world, but it's a way that God went about creating the world. Basically, it's a description of the evolutionary process that God used over billions of years to bring about the, bring about the world and that it is simply a symbolic tale to teach us lessons. I didn't even comment. I'm just riding down I-59 thinking, really? So I get home and I'm up for like a long time because I really liked it. I mean, this was a guy, I really considered him a friend, respected him. He was bright, intelligent. So, I mean, it, it messed with me and I thought, what, what are we talking about? And so I started kind of reading for myself and realized that, that evidently this is not so far-fetched that there aren't other people that, believe, that would call themselves Christian that also would go down that road. So I, I just developed a list of questions. So we began talking about this every single ride. And here's kind of where, where I, I'm gonna, I can't take you through every debate and conversation we had, but I want to take you to what I believe is the, the crux of the matter. Because this is what kept me up. If you don't believe that there was a literal man named Adam and a literal man named Eve, and a literal man named Noah, and a literal flood, and you don't believe those things, okay? Why do you believe that Jesus rose from the grave? Why, why do you believe that Daniel was rescued from the mouths of lions? Why do you believe in the story of Joseph? Why, why do, do you believe that Jonah was literally swallowed by a fish? Do you believe that the Red Sea literally parted? Do you believe that God literally fed 5,000 people? Do you believe that Jesus literally was born of a virgin? Do you believe that Jesus is literally going to make a bodily return? And here's where I got, because I held my Bible and I realized that I'm about to be hit with things that, that are going to be really difficult and I have a lot to learn and I've got to, if I'm going to debate these things and, and be a champion for Scripture... But where I had to start was I just bowed my head and said, God, I either got to believe you or I got to think you're a liar. And I believe you. So help my heart and my mind to be able to defend that which I know to be true. And over the course of time, I began to see more and more that the greatest threat, the greatest progressive, secular, liberal threat to the church is an attack on the authority of Scripture. You hear about the PCUSA, that's the liberal branch of the Presbyterian Church, the Methodist denomination, all of it when we talk about biblical sexuality and all the issues that come with that. Do you know where it stems from? It stems from denying the authority of Scripture. Because when you become the judge and arbiter about what in this book you are going to decide is true and what of it you are going to decide is false, then you have tried to usurp the very throne of God and said that now I am the one who is going to decide whether that's over sexual ethics, whether that's over the way to salvation, whether that's over any other doctrinal issue. So the Bible in and of itself has to be 
first. Now, we're actually going to get to what's on the page, but to get there, I'm trying to give you some real-life practical reasons for why I don't just need to tell you you ought to believe the Bible. You need to believe the Bible. Fast forward. Fast forward. I'm the pastor of this church. Years ago, we were looking for a student minister. Um, in fact, this has been so long ago that Craig Richardson had been our student pastor and we were moving away from, he was going to move into another role um, and when he moved into another role, we were going to hire a youth pastor. So we began interviewing all these people and I'm of the opinion, uh, I'm, I'm involved with all of those. I don't, I don't personally handpick everybody we hire, but I'm in on every interview, every, conversations, uh, it's that big a deal to me. And so we had found this, this, this young man Bright, energetic, passionate, people loved him, good-looking kid, like, I mean, checked all the boxes. Um, committee had interviewed him, loved him. Group of us, staff, left here and drove and met him at a restaurant. And we went into the restaurant, sat down, had a fantastic, about an hour and a half. We talked, laughed through situations, through scenarios, all of those things looked at each other everybody's kind of nodding just man, this, this is going really really well after you've been working with people for a while Bradley's there Craig was there we kind of you could kind of just tell the vibe this looks like the way we're going and so I paid the bill and I paid the bill and I put put it down and I got we got up and I shook his hand and I pushed the chair back under and I went to walk away and when I went to walk away I've never heard God audibly but all I heard in my heart was asking and I knew what that meant. I said, do you mind sitting back down for just a second? I said, I, I mean, I'm sorry. I, I should ask you this from the very beginning. And he sat down, and I asked the exact same question that I got hit with on I-59. I said, let me ask you something. Do you believe that there was a literal man named Adam and a literal woman named Eve and that God called a literal man named Noah and that he literally built a boat and that literal animals got on that boat? And this is what he said. Well, you see, and when he said, well, you see, I just leaned up and I said, young man, you just answered the question. There wasn't but one answer. And that answer was yes. And I don't know where you're going with this explanation, but I want to tell you that my hope for you is that in ministry you would discover the authority of God's word and that you would be overwhelmed by the fact that the only answer to that question is yes I believe the Bible 100% that it's inspired authoritative and infallible I said I know this is going to come across as probably pretty aggressive what I'm about to tell you I said but you will never be on staff at First Baptist Summit because if there's there's a lot of things that we can put up with but one of the things we will never put up with is someone who denies the authority of the word of God I said, so my best wishes to you, and I promise you I will pray for you, but it would be pray for God to get a hold of your heart about the truth of his word. And we left that conversation, and I don't know that any of us said anything until we got probably almost halfway home. And one of, one of the guys that was with us just said, why did, we were talking about how glad we were that we asked that question. Why did you ask that question? And I said, because I guess if someone can answer that question correctly, then it opens up a whole lot of other questions about maybe some other things that they believe. But if they can't answer that one correctly, 
What are we going to do with a generation of people that we have entrusted our kids to that somehow down the line that deep intrinsically did not have a belief in the authority of Scripture? And so since then, that has become, in, in one of the reasons people ask me all the time, that's all you do is, is all we do is preach through books. That, that's, that's all we do. We're in First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, starting in January, I'm going to preach nine weeks to you on the life of Elijah. I'm really excited about that. And then I think, I'm just putting it out there, I think, don't hold me to this, I'm working on the series right now, I think we're going to spend about two years in the Gospel of John. I, that's just what we do. Because it's what the Bible, the Bible's all I have to teach. It's all we have to live on. So when we talk about sola scriptura, when we say that God is the author, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed breathed. Now, sometimes when people hear about that, they'll say, well, Paul's just talking about the Old Testament. There are many times in, in the New Testament when they refer to the other authors in the New Testament as, as the writing of authoritative church documents. By the time Paul wrote to Timothy, those documents would have already been collected. There were the Gospels had already been collected, and the God breathed this, this spirit on human speech, on human writing to produce the text of the Bible. So the human reader is not the judge. Um, can I tell you about why I think that a lot of times small groups um, and Bible studies become heretical? Let me give you what not to do in Bible study. You ready? How many of you have been to this Bible study? I went to one in college, and it got real weird. When God really turned my life around, I started saying, well, I guess I need to find Bible studies. And so, man, if somebody invited me to go, I'd go. That was one of the first kind of indications I had that not every Bible study is something you need to be in, all right? Not every meeting is beneficial. And so we go to these meetings, and it would be this kind of this, um, everybody wanted to have this mystical experience. And so somebody would read a Bible text, and then they would ask this question, let's just go around the room, and you just, you say what it means to you, and then you say what it means to you, and we'll just all kind of say what this scripture means to each other. What a bunch of garbage. Why? I don't care what it means to you. I could not care less what it means to you. You say, well, that is the most callous thing I've ever heard. When someone preaches, when someone teaches, or when the Bible is talked about, the number one thing we need to discover is not the way it makes someone feel. I want to know what it means. Not what it means to you. Tell me what it means. And so when we come to talking about the inspiration of Scripture, it, the human reader is not the judge. Some argue God only inspired the ideas. Others argue in mechanical dictation. When we say mechanical dictation, that's as if God is just speaking and he has, and every writer of the Bible was just a secretary and he just wrote down exactly what it was that God said. I don't think that we can legitimately believe that because if you read the Bible, it's obvious that authors' personalities come out. You can tell when you read John and you read Paul that the same person did not write this. So because of that, what we know is, is that God used what is 
theologians call the verbal plenary theory, which contends that the Holy Spirit breathed through the human authors using personalities, writing styles, personal experiences, but he uses that to accomplish his purpose. So we have exactly what God intends for us to have, nothing more, nothing less. Um, it is one of the reasons why you should be nervous, not only going back to the Reformation, when the Roman Catholic Church or any other church claims that they have equal authority to. I, I actually think it's one of the, that a Pope's hat is one of the most dangerous things for someone to put on. Because when you declare that you have the same authority as God Almighty to speak on an issue, you stand, you're standing on blasphemous ground. But it is not only Catholic popes and priests and bishops that do it. There are churches all over the place that define themselves as apostolic. You, you familiar with this term? Apostolic? What does that mean? It means that we claim to have apostolic authority. Now, what is, what is, what is apostolic? That's an apostle. Who were the apostles? Well, there was 12 of them. One ended up being the son of perdition, a devil himself. And his guts spilled out because he denied the Son of God and they replaced him with a man by the name of Matthias. We also know that Paul was as one unnaturally called. Those are the only apostles. That's it. They died. The last one died in the 90 A.D. range. And that's when John died on Patmos. All the apostles died. So why would somebody claim to have apostolic authority? Because if I claim that I have the same authority as John or Paul or Peter, it now means that I can speak for God and that my words have the same authority as the writers of Scripture. So that when the pastor says, do this, do this, this is, or you hear this, I've gotten a fresh word from the Lord. Run. Run. You don't have a fresh word from the Lord. The last word from the Lord was written almost 2,000 years ago. I don't need a fresh word. I can spend my whole life exploring these 66 books and they're old words and they're inspired words and they're perfect words and they're God-ordained words and they're inerrant words and they're infallible words. Fresh word. Get out of here. I had a guy call me years ago said, Brother Larry, I just wanted to tell you I was in prayer and the Holy Spirit revealed something unto me. And I said, do tell. He said, I'm supposed to preach at your church Sunday. I said, you don't say. He said, oh yeah. He's told me. And I said, well that's weird. I said, because I hadn't heard that. The Holy Spirit has not revealed that unto me. He said, but I've got a fresh word. I said, we don't need it. We got an old one. We've got an old word. And we're going to keep revealing it over and over and over again because the gospel is sufficient and the Bible is closed. It's a closed canon. That, that's why we don't have 
so many of the intertestamental books that God added, added later, all that Da Vinci Code, do you remember that? you remember hearing about all of that? About how there were all these Gospels. They were Gnostic heretical Gospels that were written centuries later than people claimed had the same authority as Scripture. I don't know why people think that it's really that difficult when John the Revelator on the island of Patmos said, nothing shall, shall be added unto this. He's talking specifically about Revelation, but he's talking about it because John knows at that point it is the last revelation that will ever be given that will have authority for faith and practice. So we know the answers to that. We have exactly what God wants us to have, nothing more, nothing less. It is truth without any mixture of error. Inerrancy means that the Bible always tells the truth in all it talks about. Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are flawless. Proverbs 35, every word of God is flawless. Psalm 19, 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, all men are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. 2 Peter 1, 20-21, No prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's pretty clear. If the Bible contained error, how could we trust it? You can't stake your eternity on a fallible revelation. It's inconceivable that God would give His people a book that they couldn't trust. To disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disobey God. Whatever the Bible says about itself, about man, about God, about life, about death, about history, about science, and every other subject is true. Now, pay attention to this next statement. Don't lift this out of context. This does not mean that every statement in the Bible is true because the Bible records the lies of men and of Satan. Matthew chapter 4. Satan takes Jesus into the wilderness. If you take Satan's advice and you say, oh, well, this is what we should do. Tell these rocks to become bread. Jump off the temple mount. And he used scripture to try to back that up. They were lies because Satan is a deceiver. If you read the book of Job, I've actually heard, I actually heard a sermon once. Um, started to write a paper on this. They start, got furious. They actually took the advice of Bildad and Eliphaz and Elihu in the book of Job and then used that as if that was the, the advice that we ought to give people. Now, if you've read Job, you know that they, he had foolish counselors. They looked at Job and what was their advice? Well, you wouldn't be having all these problems if you weren't so rotten. If you weren't such a sinner, you wouldn't be dealing with all of this. God said, this, is the, this, this man is righteous and upright and blameless. He actually was having the problems not because he was evil. He was having the problems because he was righteous. And they gave terrible advice. But if you lifted their advice out, those, that advice is not true, but the record of what they said is true. And that's what we're talking about when we say the record is true. This recognizes that the Bible sometimes uses approximations, observational descriptions of nature, as well as everyday speech. I heard a guy one time going on a rant about in Joshua. It says, have you ever seen where it says that the sun stood still? We know we can't believe the Bible. The Bible has no idea about science. What we've learned from astronomy and physics is what? 
that the sun always stands still, that it is the earth that rotates on its axis. So far, we believe that's true. This is the best, best expression I ever heard. And, and so I'm listening to this argument, and I'm thinking, well, that is true. The sun's always still. What would have had to happen is that the rotation of the earth would have had to have actually stopped for daylight to hold so that they could continue in the battle. So I'm listening to this, and then I heard one of the most fantastic explanations for that. He said, well, then I guess we need to also make sure that every single newscaster in the world quits talking about sunrises and sunsets. The sun doesn't rise, and the sun doesn't set. The earth rotates. And his, the point was that that was not an effort to make a scientific statement that was an idiomatic expression that is still used today to talk about light and dark. And so when we hear about so much today, especially with science, people will say, well, the Bible is not reconciled with science. All science ever is, when understood correctly, is a way to, un to better understand what God did, not something to be able to object to how God did it. In other words... If you study astronomy, if you study biology, if you study chemistry, and you really understand it. My daughter asked me a question the other night. I thought this was fantastic. She said, Daddy, tell me about, tell me about Bobo's brother. And my dad um, grew up. Uh, he had one brother. Died in, uh, my, my dad's brother died in childhood. He was a hemophiliac, and this was before they had great treatments. They called that a free bleeder back in the day. And he was playing in the yard and he broke his leg. And the internal injuries, they weren't ever able to, to stop the bleeding and he spent a long time in the hospital. And so I asked her, I said, yeah, I said, Bobo, he had a brother, his name was Warren. I said, obviously I never met him. He died long before um, I was ever born. I said, why, why are you asking about that? And she said, well, I'm writing writing a paper right now a short paper in biology and we're studying genetics and I remember hearing something about that but hemophilia she starts explaining to me about the recessive gene that has to be present in both parents so she was studying to figure out could I be a carrier of hemophilia but because of the genetic markers I can't be she found out that neither her nor Luke could be a carrier of hemophilia, and she's going through and explaining this to me off of a chart. I'm fascinated by it, and I'm kind of a little moved that she even thought about remembering hearing this story, so we're having this conversation, and she said, just off the cuff, this wasn't some deep spiritual conversation, she said, you know this biology class? She said, I don't know how people don't believe in God. That was her takeaway, that it is so complex from trying to study mitosis and meiosis, cell division, and all these different aspects of it, that you either ha you have to believe that somebody made it or somebody didn't. And so when we talk about science, it should never be an enemy of Scripture. It ought to be an aid to Scripture. And that's how it was seen for centuries until more recently. So what about, and these are obviously some of the common objections, um, that, that we hear, but problems with denying inerrancy. Um, can we imitate God and lie too? Um, if you deny that, that the Bible is inerrant, then obviously 
that doesn't give you much of a moral compass if God is the author and he doesn't always tell the truth. Number two, can we actually trust God? Number three, if we make our own mind a higher standard of truth than God's word. Number four, we must admit the possibility that the Bible is wrong in doctrines as well. Back to the whole issue of creation. If there's not a literal Adam and Eve, then I've opened up a Pandora's box for what I'm able to decide to believe, what I'm not able to decide to believe. Is it any wonder that somebody looks and says, oh, every time it talks about homosexuality, we don't believe that part. Every time it talks about anything that I disagree with, I don't believe that part. Well, that's the world that we live in, and that's one of the issues that, that, that I think that jumps off the page in understanding this. Uh, number five, when a person, school, or movement treats this doctrine as peripheral or abandons it, other doctrines the church considers quite major will be dismissed as well. Let me give you the number one, let me give you the number one example of that. You deny the authority of Scripture, even a soft denial of the authority of Scripture. It won't take very long that you'll ask this question, and we'll be talking about this more in the weeks to come. Would you say that Christ is the only way that someone can be saved? Once you deny the authority of Scripture, the next denial is that there are other ways to be saved as well. And because if Scripture is not authoritative, then every path becomes like universalism. And you start hearing things like, we're all just taking equal paths. We're just all going through different doors to get to the same destination. We're all going through different doors, but I can promise you they do not lead to the same place. And there are doors, what we talked about Sunday, that lead to hell. Any door that someone enters that is not through Christ, Jesus made it really plain, John 10, I am the gate for the sheep. No one enters except by the gate. That's it. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Salvation, Acts 4 and 12, salvation is found in no other name than the name of Jesus Christ that men might be saved. It's pretty simple. And so once we deny the authority of Scripture, we give away everything. And so over this week and next week when we come back together, we're going to continue our study on Sola Scriptura and we're going to try to be even more applicable about when we love this doctrine, when we believe this doctrine, when we embrace this doctrine, how does that affect us personally? How does that make a difference in our lives? How does that make a difference uh, as we really dig a little deeper on Hebrews 12, uh, or Hebrews, excuse me, Hebrews 4, 12, and 13? So we're going to study that next week and continue this study together. You pray as we walk through these solas together. Um, I've been so convicted studying these. Um, I... I actually told Trey the other day, I said, Hash, I want you to think about something. There's five solas and there's five days to Bible school. There's five solas and normally we have four or five days to youth camp. Scott and I talked about that. There's five solas and you could cover one in a Disciple Now weekend. They're absolutely that important to who we are. Um, you, if every one of our students could explain the five solas they would have one of the strongest sets of theology that you could ask for a child to have coming out of coming out of a church and so that's just really been something that's on my heart and on my life lately thank you for 
studying this along together with me. Uh, make sure that tonight before we leave um, that you definitely, you've got small group folders that are out there. We've got prayer sheets. Please uh, pick up those. Please uh, be sure that you take note of those. Make contacts. It makes a difference. Let people know that you love them. Um, not a week that passes being getting to be the pastor of this church that somebody doesn't tell me how incredible it is that they were contacted, called, written a note that made a difference in their life. So you're making a difference. Sometimes you know you're making a difference. Sometimes you don't always know, but you are. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that your word is perfect. I thank you, Lord, that we can trust in you with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding. That, Lord, in all our ways we acknowledge you. And, Lord, you're the one that will make our path straight. We thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So, God, may we hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.